Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Good morning and welcome to chapter 41 of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry. And we are still in the prehistoric masonry uh, section of his books. So chapter 41 is The Legend of Enoch. Before concluding this series of essays, as they might be called, on the legendary history of Freemasonry, it will be necessary, so that we may thoroughly cover the subject, to refer to a few legends of a peculiar character which have not yet been noticed. These form no part of the original legend of the craft. There are, however, brief allusions in that document to them, so brief as almost to attract no especial note, but which might possibly indicate that some form, perhaps a very mangled one, of these legends was familiar to the medieval Freemasons. Perhaps, and this is more probable, they have suggested a foundation for the making of these legendary stories at a later period by the speculative Freemasons of the 18th century. Another possibility is that both of these views are correct, and that while the imperfect and incomplete legend was known to the Freemasons of the Middle Ages, its completed form was thereby suggested to the fraternity at a later period, and after the era of the revival. Whichever of these views we may accept, it is at least certain that at the present day, and in the present condition of the fraternity, these legends form an important part of the ritualism of the order. They cannot be rejected in their symbolic meaning unless we are willing with them to throw away the whole fabric of Freemasonry, into which they have been closely woven. Of these legends, and of some lesser ones of the same class, Dr. Oliver has spoken with great fairness in his historical landmarks in the following words, quote, It is admitted that we are in possession of numerous legends which are not found in Holy Writ, but being of very ancient date, are entitled to consideration, although their authenticity may be questioned and their aid rejected. I shall not, however, in any case, use their evidence as a prima facie means of proving any doubtful proposition, but merely in corroboration of an argument which might probably be complete without their aid. Our system of typical or legendary tradition adds to the dignity of the institution by its general reference to sublime truths which were considered necessary to its existence or its consistency, although some of the facts, how pure soever at their first promulgation, may have been distorted and perverted by passing through a multitude of hands in their transmission down the stream of time, amidst the fluctuation of the earth and the downfall of mighty states and empires." End quote. Without discussing the question of their great age, or of their original purity and their later misuse and mangling, we propose to present these legends to the Masonic reader. We do this because they are not really so much traditional tales of events that are supposed to have at some time occurred, but they are to be considered really as allegorical attempts to symbolize certain ethical or religious ideas, the expression of, of which lies at the very foundation of the Masonic system. So considered, they must be deemed of great value. Their interest will also be much increased by a comparison of the facts of history that are interwoven within them, and to some certain traditions of the ancient Oriental nations showing the existence of the same legends among them. These may, indeed, have been the foundation on which the Masonic ones have been built. 
the distortion or perversion being simply those variations necessary to connect the legendary statements more closely and consistently with the Masonic symbolic ideas. The first two of these, to which our attention will be directed, is the legend of Enoch, the seventh of the patriarchs, of whom Milton has said, quote, Him the Most High, wrapped in a balmy cloud with winged steeds, did, as thou seest, receive to walk with God, high in salvation, and the claims of bliss, exempt from death, end quote. We shall first present the reader with the Masonic legend, and then endeavor to trace out the idea which it was intended to convey by a comparison of it with historical events, with Oriental traditions of a similar nature, and with the Masonic symbolism which it seems to convey. The legend as accepted by the craft, from a time hereafter to be considered, runs to the following effect. Enoch, being inspired by the Most High, and in obedience to a vision, built underground in the bosom of Mount Moriah a structure of nine brick vaults vertically, one underneath the other, and having their entrances and exits through openings left in the arch of each vault. He then caused a three-cornered plate of gold to be made, each side of which was a cubit long. He enriched it with the most precious stones and engraved upon it the ineffable, not to be spoken, name of God. He then fastened the plate upon a stone of agate of the same form, which he placed on a cubical block of marble, and deposited the whole within the ninth or innermost vault. When this underground building was completed, Enoch made a slab or door of stone, and attaching it to a ring of iron, by which it might, if necessary, be raised, he placed it over the opening of the uppermost arch, and so covered it over with soil that the entrance could not easily be discovered. Enoch himself was not permitted to enter it more than once a year. On his death or translation, all knowledge of this building and of the sacred treasure which it contained was lost until in succeeding ages it was accidentally discovered while Solomon was engaged in building a temple above the spot on the same mountain. The legend proceeds to inform us that after Enoch had finished the construction of the nine vaults, fearing that the principle of the arts and sciences which he had carefully studied would be lost in that world flood of which he had received a prophetic vision, he erected above ground two pillars, one of marble to withstand the destructive influence of fire, and one of brass to resist the action of water. On the pillar of brass he engraved the history of creation, the principles of the arts and sciences, and the doctrines of speculative Freemasonry as they were then practiced, and on the pillar of marble he inscribed in hieroglyphics the information that near the spot where they stood a precious treasure was laid away in a secret underground vault. Such is the legend of Enoch, which forms a very important part of the legendary history of the High Degrees. As a traditional account, it has not the slightest support of authentic history, and the events that it relates do not recommend themselves by an air of probability. But, accepted as the expression of a symbolic idea, it undoubtedly possesses some value. That part of the tradition referring to the two pillars is clearly borrowed from the old craft legend of Lamech's sons, which has already been treated in this work. We need not now give it further consideration. The germ of the legend is the preservation of the ineffable name through the efforts of the patriarch. This is in fact the true symbolism of the legend, and it is thus connected with the whole system of Freemasonry in its speculative form. There is no allusion to this story in the legend of the craft. None of the old manuscript constitutions contain the name of Enoch, nor does he appear to have been deemed by the medieval Freemasons to be one of the worthies of the craft. The Enoch spoken of in the Cook manuscript is the son of Cain, and not the seventh patriarch. We must conclude, therefore, that the legend was made at a later day, and in no way suggested by anything in the original tradition of the craft. 
but that there were traditions outside of Freemasonry, which prevailed in the Middle Ages in reference to underground caves in Mount Moriah, is evident from the writings of the old historians. Thus, there was a tradition of the Talmudists that when King Solomon was building the temple, foreseeing that at some future time the edifice would be destroyed, he caused a dark and intricate vault to be constructed underground, where the ark might be concealed whenever such a time of danger should arrive, and that Hosea, being warned by Huldah, the prophetess of the approaching peril, caused the ark to be hidden in the crypt built by Solomon. There was also in this vault, as in that of Enoch, a cubical stone on which the ark was placed. There is a tradition also among the Arabians of a sacred stone found by Abraham beneath the earth and made by him the stone of the foundation of the temple which Jehovah ordered him to erect, a temple the tradition of which is confined to the Mohammedans. But the most curious story is one told by Nicorephus Callistus, a Greek historian of the 14th century, in his Ecclesiastical Histories. When detailing the events that occurred while Julian the Apostate was making his attempt to rebuild the Temple of Jerusalem, he tells the following fable, but of whose traditional character the monk has not the slightest notion. And this now starts a long quote. When the foundations were being laid, as has been said, one of the stones attached to the lowest part of the foundation was removed from its place and showed the mouth of a cavern which had been cut out of the rock. But as the cave could not be distinctly seen, those who had charge of the work wishing to explore it, that they might be better acquainted with the place, sent one of the workmen down tied to a long rope. When he got to the bottom, he found water up to his legs. Searching the cavern on every side, he found, by touching with his hands, that it was of a quadrangular form. When he was returning to the mouth, he discovered a certain pillar standing up scarcely above the water. Feeling with his hand, he found a little book placed upon it, and wrapped up in very fine and clean linen. Taking possession of it, he gave the signal with the rope that those who had sent him down should draw him up. Being received above, as soon as the book was shown, all were struck with astonishment, especially as it had appeared untouched and fresh, notwithstanding that it had been found in so dismal and dark a place. But when the book was unfolded, not only the Jews, but the Greeks were astounded. For even at the beginning it declared in large letters, In the beginning was the Word with God, and the Word was God. To speak plainly, the writing embraced the whole gospel which was announced in the divine tongue of the virgin disciple. End quote. True, Enoch has been supposed to be identical with Hermes, and Carraher says in the Oedipus Egyptiacus, Idris among the Hebrews has been called Enoch, among the Egyptians Osiris and Hermes, and he was the first who, before the flood, had any knowledge of astronomy and geometry. End quote. But the authors of the legend of the craft were hardly likely to be acquainted with this piece of archaeology. The Hermes to which, with a very corrupt spelling they referred to as the son of Cush, was the Hermes Trismegist, popularly known as the father of wisdom. Enoch is first introduced to the craft as one of the founders of geometry and Freemasonry by Anderson in the year 1723, who in the Constitutions printed that year has the following passage, quote, by some vestiges of antiquity we find one of them, the offspring of Seth, prophesying of the final conflagration at the Day of Judgment, as St. Jude tells, and likewise of the general deluge for the punishment of the world, upon which he erected his two large pillars, though some ascribe them to Seth, the one of stone and the other of brick, whereon were engraven the liberal sciences, etc., and that the stone pillar remained in Syria until the days of Vespasian the emperor." 
15 years afterwards, when Anderson published the second edition of the Constitutions, he repeated the legend with the further claim that Enoch was expert, and this is a quote, expert and bright, both in the science and the art of geometry and Freemasonry. End quote. An account of which he placed on the pillars he had erected. He adds that the old Masons firmly believe this tradition. But as there is no appearance of any such tradition in the old records, of which since his time a large number have been recovered, for in them the building of the pillars is credited to the sons of Lamech, we shall accept this assertion with many grains of allowance and set it down to the general inaccuracy of Anderson when giving the authority of legend. As the first mention of Enoch as a Freemason is made by Anderson, and as we not long afterward find him incorporated into the legendary history of the order, we may in fairness credit to him the suggestion of the legend, which was afterwards greatly developed. This legend was not, however, adopted into the English system, since neither Entick nor Northick, who after Anderson edited the Book of Constitutions, say anything more of Enoch than had already been given by Anderson. They did, indeed, correct to some extent his statement by ascribing the pillars either to Seth or to Enoch, leaning, therefore, to the authority of Josephus, but equally with Anderson, abandoning the real tradition of the old legend which gave them to the children of Lamech. We may consider it very evident that the legend of Enoch was born on the continent of Europe. Brother Mackey was climbed at a guest who assigned its invention to the fertile genius of the Chevalier Ramsay. But if not to him, then to some one or other of our brotherhood having to do with the making of Masonic rites. Ramsay was too scholarly a man to be ignorant of the many Oriental traditions, Arabic, Egyptian, and Rabbinical, concerning Enoch, that had long been in existence. Of this we have evidence in a very learned work on the philosophical principles of natural and revealed religion, published by him in 1749. In this work, he refers to the tradition to be found in all nations of a great man or legislator who was the first author of sacred symbols and hieroglyphics, and who taught the people their sacred mysteries and religious rites. This man, Ramsey says, was among the Phoenicians, Thot, the Greeks, Hermes, the Arabians, Edris, but he must have known that Thot, Hermes, and Edris were all synonymous with Enoch, for he admits that, quote, all of these lived some time before the universal deluge, and they were all the same man, and consequently some antediluvian or before the flood patriarch. Finally, he adds that, quote, some think that this antediluvian patriarch was Enoch himself, end quote. Then he presents in the following language those views which most probably supplied the suggestions that were afterward developed by himself or some of his followers in the full form of the Masonic legend of Enoch. Quote, Whatever be in these conjectures, says Ramsey, it is certain from the principles laid down that the antediluvian or novian patriarchs ought to have taken some surer measures for transmitting the knowledge of divine truths to their posterity than by oral tradition, and consequently that they either invented or made use of hieroglyphics or symbols to preserve the memory of these sacred truths. End quote. These he calls the Enochian symbols. He does not, indeed, make any allusion to a secret hiding place for these symbols of Enoch, and supposes that they must have been given to the sons of Noah and their families for generations, though in time they lost their true meaning. But the change made in the Masonic le legend was necessary to adapt it to a peculiar system of ritualism. We may wonder how Enoch ever became, among the ancients, a type of the mysteries of religion. The book of Genesis devotes only three short verses to an account of him, and nothing is there said of him, his deeds, or his character, except an allusion to his piety. The Oriental writers, however, abound in traditionary tales of the learning of the patriarch. 
One tradition states that God bestowed upon him the gift of knowledge, and that he received thirty volumes from heaven filled with all the secrets of the most mysterious sciences. The Babylonians supposed him to have been intimately acquainted with the nature of the stars, and they credit to him the invention of astrology. The Jewish rabbins maintained that he was taught by Adam how to sacrifice and how to worship the deity aright. The Kabbalistic book of Raziel says that he perceived the divine mysteries through the direct line of the preceding patriarchs. Bar Hebraeus, a Jewish writer, asserts that Enoch was the first who invented books and writing, that he taught men the art of building cities, thus evidently mixing him up with another Enoch, the son of Cain, that he discovered the knowledge of the zodiac and the course of the stars, and that he taught the worship of God by religious rites. There is a coincidence in the sacred character thus bestowed upon Enoch with his name and the age at which he died, and this may have something to do with the mystical qualities bestowed upon him by the Orientalists. The word Enoch signifies in Hebrew, initiated or consecrated, and would seem, as all Hebrew names are significant, to have authorized or perhaps rather suggested the idea of his connection with a system of initiation into sacred rites. He lived, the scriptures say, 365 years. This too would readily be received as having a mystical meaning, for 365 is the number of days in a solar year, and was therefore deemed a sacred number. Thus we have seen that the letters of the mystical word Abraxas, which was the Gnostic name of the supreme deity, amounted, according to their numerical value in the Greek alphabet, to 365, which was also the case with Mithras, the god to whom the Mithraic mysteries were dedicated. This may account for the statement of Bar Hebraeus that Enoch appointed festivals and sacrifices to the sun at the periods when that body of light entered each of the zodiacal signs. Goldzeiher, a German ethnologist, a student of race and family growth, has advanced a similar idea in his work on mythology among the Hebrews. He says, quote, The solar character of Enoch admits of no doubt. He is brought into connection with the building of towns, a solar feature. He lived exactly 365 years, the number of days of the solar year, which cannot be accidental. And even then he did not die, but Enoch walked with Elohim and was no more to be seen, for Elohim took him away. In the old times, when the figure of Enoch was imagined, this was doubtless called Enoch's ascension to heaven, as in the late traditional legend, ascensions to heaven are generally acknowledged to be solar features. Jay Skinner calls attention to the remarkable development of the Enoch legend in the apocalyptic literature, books of Revelation, where Enoch appears as a preacher of repentance, a prophet of future events, and the receiver of a more than natural knowledge of the secrets of heaven and earth. Quote, the origin of this tradition has probably been discovered in a striking Babylonian parallel. The seventh name in the list of antediluvian before the flood, kings given by Barossus, is Evadurantius, which, it is seems certain, is a corruption of Emendaranki, a king of Sippar, who was received into the fellowship of Shamash, the sun god, and Raman, was initiated into the mysteries of heaven and earth, and became the founder of a guild of priestly diviners. When or how this myth became known to the Jews, we cannot tell. A trace of an original connection with the sun god has been suspected in the 365 years of Enoch's life, the number of days in a solar year. At all the events, it is highly probable that the Babylonian legend contains the germ of the later conception of Enoch as embodied in the apocalyptic book of Enoch, about 105 to 64 years before Christ, and the later book of the secrets of Enoch. End quote. These statements and speculation have been objected to because they would tend to make Enoch an idolater and a sun worshiper. 
This is a consequence by no means absolutely necessary, but as the whole is merely traditionary, we need waste no time in defending the orthodox character of the patriarch's religious views. After all, it would appear that the legend of Enoch, being wholly unknown to the fraternity in the Middle Ages, unrecognized in the legend of the craft, and the name even not mentioned in any of the old records, was first introduced into the rituals of some of the higher degrees which began to be known towards the middle of the 18th century, that it was invented by some of those ritual makers who immediately succeeded the Chevalier Ramsay, and that in its arrangement suggestions were freely borrowed from the rabbinical and oriental traditions on the same subject. It is impossible then to assign to this legend the slightest historical character. It is made up altogether out of traditions which were the inventions of Eastern imagination. We must view it, therefore, as an allegory, but as one which has a most serious symbolic character. It was intended to teach the doctrine of divine truth by the symbol of the holy name, the Tetragrammaton, the name most reverently consecrated in the Jewish system as well as in others, and which has always been one of the most important and prominent symbols of speculative Freemasonry. In the continental system of the high degrees, this symbol is presented in the form of the legend of Enoch. From the English system of ancient craft Freemasonry, that legend is rejected, or rather, it never has been admitted into it. In its place, there is another esoteric legend, which, differing altogether in details, is identical in results and affects the same symbolism. But this will be more appropriately discussed when we come to treat in detail the symbolism of Freemasonry. And that ends chapter 41. Join us again next week for chapter 42, Noah and the Noahites. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.